Are you curious on how much your business is worth? Get your free no obligation offer from Open Store at open.store. The subscription market is predicted to grow to nearly $500 billion by 2025. Recharge is a leading subscription management solution helping e-commerce merchants of all sizes launch and scale their subscription offerings. Over 15,000 merchants use subscriptions powered by Recharge to grow their business and their communities by increasing average order value, reducing churn, and providing predictable recurring revenue. Turn transactions into long-term customer relationships and experience seamless subscription commerce with Recharge. Check them out at rechargepayments.com forward slash DTC pod. What's up DTC pod? Today, uh, we're joined by Kristen Toth, who is um, the COO and president of Furnish. So Kristen, why don't you kick us off? Um, what are you guys up to at Furnish and what's the company all about? Uh, well, you know, it's great time to be talking and I'm super excited to be here and I can't wait to talk to you not only about like Furnish at a high level, but also just some really breaking news uh, for us here. So at Furnish, like our mission is to make it effortless to create your home. And when I say that, I usually kind of hone in on two different uh, parts of that. One is home and home is not just a space. It's not just the things in those space to really make a home it's emotional. It comes with feeling, right? So there's comfort, joy, safety, a lot of different things that sort of come into you, your needs and your life. Um, and home really is about sort of that feeling, that that space that has that emotion for you and, and an evolution throughout your life. So if you think about home, you've always probably had some really emotional tie to a place and a space and a, a time that felt like home, uh, but that's changed over your time. So that's where Effortless really comes in. It should be really easy to find the things that help you create that space, create that feeling. You should have an incredible stress-free experience when your items are delivered. They should be quick to deliver. We should set them up for you. All of the boxes wrapping sort of magically disappears and you sort of end up with a, a home without a lot of stress, without a lot of time that you've had to invest in, in in sort of doing the things that are less joyful about that. And then as your life changes, that home should evolve with you. So where you live, whom you live with, how you're using your space, all those things we've probably experienced a lot in the last two years as just sort of a reminder that those things change a lot. Um, but but we you know really want to make sure that it's easy to have that evolution and have your home evolve with you and to your needs. And you shouldn't have to feel guilty when something is no longer serving you and you have to dispose of it. So what Furnish does is we offer this curated selection of durable, um, timeless pieces that you can pay bite-sized monthly payments for that we can deliver to you in as few as seven days where you can swap things out, have us move them if you move. Um, where you can apply all of your rental payments to buy the things that you've been renting, that you've fallen in love with, um, and basically just make it super, super easy. Um, and the, the products that we, we, um, we stock are not only like durable and timeless, high quality, um, but also they are sort of the full sort of list of things that you might want to have. So the kind of main furniture pieces, sofas, beds, dining tables, the complementary pieces to those nightstands, coffee tables, mattresses, um, you know, dining room chairs, and then de decor, rugs, wall art, mirrors, lamps, the things that sort of fill in those pieces make it really cozy. So we, we source them from really high quality furniture manufacturers. We've even designed and manufactured a couple of sofa lines ourselves. And then we have some partnerships with some name brands that you might recognize like EQ3 and Crate and & Barrel. And so that's kind of what we're up to right now. We have a very localized operation that um, in order for us to provide this amazing service has to be close to customers because we're very circular, because we're going to see you probably a couple of times during our relationship with you as a customer. And so, you know, we are now servicing two new markets, actually, as of today, we're in Southern California. So kind of like 
LA all the way down to the border um, through Orange County and San Diego, the Seattle, kind of greater Seattle area, the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, Austin, Texas, and then as of today, uh, New York City and Washington, D.C. areas. So excited to be growing and expanding and really just bringing this customer experience to our customers. Yeah, one thing that I think is really cool about what you guys are doing is like when you're actually, when a consumer is going and thinking about like putting the home together, there's so many high ticket price items and it feels like every decision you're making is like super high stakes. So it almost seems like from a customer experience perspective, you're almost offering a service to like reduce that barrier in terms of like letting people, you know, try out things that they like and maybe a more like a rental fashion that they can progress into ownership. Is that is that an accurate way of thinking about it? A hundred percent. And in fact, it kind of goes to the origin story where, uh, you know, Michael, who's our CEO, he was living in New York City. And, you know, earlier in his career, he had roommates. The roommates would always sort of switch out. He'd have to buy things, get rid of things, move things, store things. And it was very like burdensome and heavyweight and just um, not joyful at all. And then when he got his own apartment, he was really excited about sort of being able to, you know, create this thing into his own home. But like you said, it's so much outlay of money. All of a sudden, you know, you're like, wow, I need to sleep somewhere and probably need to sit somewhere and might need to eat somewhere. And in order to go out and buy pieces that you're really excited about, you have to put a lot of money out there. So knowing that the the consumer sentiment out there was kind of moving away from ownership and more access, uh, you know, he would start sort of thinking about like, well, why isn't there a way that I can just go out and have what I need for the time that I need it? And then when it doesn't fit into my life for whatever reason, um, that I'm able to sort of swap that out and I'm just paying for the time that I need with it. And that's really where the, you know, the idea was born. Now, of course, you know, furniture rental has been around for decades, um, but it hasn't been with the same consumer mindset that I think all consumers are expecting these days. So all the convenience, all the flexibility, the like super high value furniture rental, you know, 1.0, if you want to call it that is really, was really a lot of like necessity, like it will get you by, but it's not going to necessarily be what you would have chosen. Um, if you have a temporary situation, it will do in a pinch. Um, and, and a lot of the, the operations and the service was built around um, business to business relationships. And so that just, you know, services things very, very different. So because we were purpose built for the consumer, I think we've really taken a different service aspect and approach to building the company from the get go. And that sets us apart, even when we're working with business customers. Yeah. And I think the two things that um, kind of jump out at me are one in terms of uh, and what you said about like the traditional rental market, right? Like from a consumer perspective, there weren't really re any good options. Like even me, I recently, you know, moved into my place, spent a lot of time dealing with uh, selecting furniture and, and all this fun stuff. But like there, there from a com consumer's point of view, like you're saying, you don't have the optionality when it comes to like renting and getting the kind of things that you want. Um, and then also from a um, just from a purchasing point of view in furniture, one thing that I like that you guys are kind of doing and how you think about rental is the fact that um, I think that there's a lot of services that help you like amortize or like spread out the payment of a good. But what that doesn't necessarily solve for is like at the end of the day, then you own a sofa and then the onus is on you to figure out like if you're moving or somewhere, it's like, okay, great. I paid, you know, three, two, three, five thousand, however much I paid for the sofa. Great. I was able to spread it out over time. But um, now I'm moving and I either have to figure out storage myself or I have to go on a secondary marketplace, figure out how to sell it myself. Um, which can be a massive burden. So you guys being able to kind of sit somewhere in the middle and say, hey, rent it if you love it, keep it. If not, you know, you're giving them all the paths and the flexibility that the consumer may need when making a decision like that. Totally, totally. I think that you hit on a, a key differentiator between us and like financing or like the buy now, uh, pay later types of models where, you know, we're set up to give you that optionality of like, 
if this isn't going to serve you for the long term, how how can we make that super easy for you as well? And that you don't have to fully pay for it, right? So if you only need it for six months, you don't have to pay the full retail price and then go figure out how to sell it for pennies on the dollar or store it or you know accumulate more cost that goes with moving it and, and dealing with it. Yeah, and, and, and the last thing I'll say to that is one crazy thing is when you when you buy a piece of furniture, right? Like you're saying, there's a big capital outlay to like acquire the furniture, but then when it actually comes time, you might be stuck in a pinch, you may have to move. And like that experience of like finding the right buyer for it and managing, managing like these are big items, right? And like coordinating the logistical pickup of it. Like you, you may be like, I, like I remember when I moved, I lived in Boston for a while, I was moving out my, you know, uh, it was like the last day of my lease, I hadn't sold my furniture. And I'm like, oh my God, I would literally pay someone to come here and take it. Like I couldn't even figure out like the Craigslist layer or the whatever. So giving that flexibility, um, I think is really cool, especially for urban people who might be in cities, might be there, you know, for months, years, or an uncertain amount of time. I think it's a, it's a really cool option to be able to bring that um, customer experience to market. So um, the next thing I would, I would want to ask in terms of like you and your background. So what was your background um, before coming to Furnish? And how did um, how did that kind of set you up for um, the challenges of like growing and scaling a company and service like this? Yeah, um, I can go in the Wayback Machine uh, and kind of just give you a little bit of the, the development of it. But um, I grew up in Michigan and I was surrounded by the auto industry and there were some things that were really amazing about it. Like you had all of these high stakes, it, um, you know, there's safety involved, there's uh, a lot of use involved and, and it's a high price tag. It's, it's a very complex system that you're sort of playing into. So there's like the mechanical pieces, there's the technology pieces, there's all the, the things that go around that like infrastructure and regulatory and all that. And I loved all that kind of complexity and the fact that it really challenged you to think with lots of different parts of your your mind and, and to like bring all these pieces together because you couldn't be successful in one area without the other sort of coming along. So that was sort of an early formative uh, place. But what I think really happened was that uh, e-commerce and the consumer internet were really taking off as I was just kind of going through school and e-commerce and, you know, using internet in ways that, you know, weren't just sort of the high, high tech folks, like that was starting to really become, you know, the forefront of, of what people were thinking and technology just accelerated and raised the bar for the things that you could do. And in school, I was an engineering major, but I always gravitated toward those things that would eliminate waste, that you could, you know, use tools to become very clever about things. Um, and, and also, you know, the business, the strategy, the people side of it. And technology was that third kind of pillar that came in and and helped me kind of find my niche. So it accelerated things. It raised the bar. You could now do optimizations and things much quicker than uh, or that even weren't available to you before that, you know, all of a sudden were. So that's what I sort of grew up in. Um, and I ended up doing a lot of benchmarking in my later years of school. And I I, I benchmarked Dell because they were doing so much in the world of e-commerce and, and how that like customer experience all the way back through their supply chain was sort of like unified and, and uh, custom built. So I, I, uh, I went there and moved to Austin after I graduated um, and was there for a couple of years before going back to grad school. And that's where I got um, sort of exposed more to what was going on at Amazon um, and I moved out to Seattle back in 2003. It wasn't the early, early days of, of Amazon, but it certainly was a totally different company back then. Um, and at Amazon, I really learned so many different things, you know, how to walk the talk of creating t customer trust and creating an awesome customer experience and how you just continuously innovate on behalf of the customer and think about what's next, what's next. Um, and that really got me understanding that I was most uncomfortable 
uncomfortable, but also most happy when I was building something, whether it was same day delivery or the digital music category from scratch. Uh, and I ended up kind of taking the jump after eight years to startups. And uh, I went to Zulily first and built out all of the supply chain and fulfillment kind of back end all the way up through our IPO. And then I went and I ran a coding school because I really wanted to find that like transformation process that created a lot of really highly desirable employees who were super happy in their job and earning a bunch and not mired in you know massive student debt, but also could satisfy all of the things that like as a sort of budding entrepreneur I wanted done because we didn't have enough software developers. Um, and then I was actually at a, a three-party marketplace for doing moving and delivery in local areas um, that was born out of the same sort of frustrating process and an experience that you just talked about um, to help, you know, connect pickup truck drivers and, and owners and people who wanted to help people move with people that needed that. Um, and then I, uh, during that time, one of my friends from Amazon, whom I had stolen from another team to come work with me at Digital Music, his name's Lucas Dickey. He and I had stayed friends and he told, he called me up one day and he's like, look, my friend Michael and I are starting this business. We'd really love to get your feedback on it, um, which I genuinely believe that they wanted. But also it's a really good way to start talking about, isn't this such a great idea? And don't you want to be a part of it in some way? Uh, and and I did. It was, it was kind of an instant just admiration for the way that they were approaching it and thinking about it from such a consumer centric perspective, like all the different complexity and the kind of competitive moats that that could build. And, um, you know, I, they asked if, uh, if they were crazy, I said, no, it won't be easy, but it's totally doable. And then they said, well, would you be part of our friends and family round here at, like pre-seed? And so I put in some money and I was an advisor for about a year and a half. And as I was uh, sort of winding down my last role, I was sort of open and thinking about what I wanted to do next. And I talked to so many different places, but I just kept coming back to Furnish in my mind. And I joined in August of 2019 and never looked back, um, mainly because, I mean, it's a great business and I love all of the things about it intellectually, but it's the people, the team that's been there since the beginning, that as it's grown and evolved, all the people that we've added it's really just a fantastic team and i'm so lucky and excited to work with everybody every single day well that is that's quite the background and i'm excited to um start to unpack um a little of it but so why don't we go back um a little bit and then we'll catch up to furnish but um so you mentioned you were at amazon for a while uh, around 2003 and that uh that seems like a really exciting time to be there that's probably i mean i think I'll have to look, but like, I think that's 2003 is probably when I signed up for like my prime account or when I was like really involved with that. When, when did prime launch? Was that? I like think it before? was 2004. I think it yeah. was 2004. We had just, um, just before I joined was the first like super safer shipping, free shipping. Like, I mean, I can't believe that there was a time when we didn't have that just everywhere we looked. But it's true. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't ubiquitous. In fact, it was. It was even new at Amazon. So yeah, 2003 was pre-prime. It was, um, you know, a, a small, like a few thousand. I want to say it was about eight thousand people when I joined, which is just mind blowing. Uh, they had been a public company for a couple of years, but even with that public company uh, obligation, there was such an entrepreneurial spirit about you know, constantly learning, constantly changing, changing, constantly innovating, constantly saying like, what's next, what's next. And uh, it, it was just like a, a such an enabling environment to go and learn. And I mean, there were regularly days I was like, what am I doing? Who's giving me the opportunity to do this? It's super irresponsible. I don't know what I'm doing. But everybody was sort of in that situation of, you know, learn, figure it out, um, you know, do the right thing, even if, even if it's a tough decision in the short term because of cost or because, you know, technology hasn't caught up. If you believe that it comes back to like the pillars of flexibility or uh, what is it? Con I'm like furnished pillars, uh, pillars right now, but uh, convenience, 
selection and value were the three at Amazon. And, you know, if, if you were innovating on one or multiple of those um, different dimensions, you know, we just had the, the ability to kind of figure it out. Um, and I think, you know, what I learned there, uh, be, you know, besides for myself was just, it really can work to make those tough decisions to you know, do something that might be unprofitable in the short term, and use that as motivation to figure out how to make that scale, um, and you know how how doing the right thing for the customer builds that trust, and you know pays off in spades so much more down the line than sort of those that like one refund you gave a customer or whatever it was that was tough for you to do. So I think that's one of the big lessons. Another big lesson was just about using data. Um, data is funny because everybody wants more than they have. No matter where I've been, no matter how well the data warehouse has been built out, everybody wants something that they can't have. And I think that that sort of relentless, like, how can I figure out what really truly is going on, especially at a place that has you know millions of different things on the website and so so many customers like the scope and scale you couldn't just go and like watch a couple of things and think that you knew what was going on so you had to go figure out like what creative questions could i ask this data set what could i learn from it how could it guide me in making a tough decision or tell me what should be next or where the opportunities are or even what's going really well that you should sort of double down on and um and so I think that, you know, those were really fantastic lessons from the Amazon days that I think have, you know, stayed with me uh, after after leaving there, but definitely a very different Amazon than it is today, I'm sure. No, of course. And yeah, it, it, it's crazy to think all the way back then, like there was a point in Amazon time, like before Prime, right? Before all these other services that were layered on. So that's just, it's so cool. One of my favorite things is, um, today will be like when I buy a book on Amazon, because like when I buy a book on Amazon, I'm like, this is so cool because their original value prop and service that they were pro like provided all the way back in the day, like I can still do that exact same thing, but I can just do all these other things as well. And obviously there become synergies between the logistics. And if you can sell a book online, you can sell, you know, a whole bunch of other things online and then grow out from there. So I, I just think it's, those things are really cool. And even kind of what you were mentioning, you're like, oh yeah, I was like joining before Prime where we were just like introducing two-day shipping and then we stepped up into the membership where, you know, then it's the membership for two-day shipping. And that that became like a really catalyst, a big catalyst of Amazon is like the, um, you know, the de facto uh, marketplace for everything today. So um, it's really cool to hear that perspective that you've got and, and being able to take those lessons and apply them um, as you've moved forward through the career. So why don't we jump into the stage you were talking about? So this is really cool, right? Because you actually served as an advisor for Furnish before coming on um, as uh, president and COO. So what did um, you know? What did advising an early stage, um, you know, e-commerce slash service based business like this? What did it look like? And um, you know, what did that at what stage were they ready to say, hey, let's actually like bring you on and hear the responsibilities that you're going to be able to own and take over now? Yeah, um, I, you know, I think I've been getting better as an advisor and recognizing that there are kind of phases and different different things that you play in when you're an advisor. So early days, you're a little bit more tactical and you're usually filling in for something like, oh, I don't really have that much supply chain experience or, you know, how do you even find a warehouse or, you know, something that's a little bit more tactical. We've got nothing. I've never done this before. Where do I even start? And you might, you know, kind of coach and, and give advice in those early days to get things off the ground. And then I think you start having higher level conversations about, well, where do we focus next? How do I figure out with all the different things that we need to build, where do I spend my time and where can I maybe kick the can down the road? And you start having these sort of like 
more strategic decisions and then uh, or conversations that are a little bit more coaching and asking questions and and sort of working through and, and you know helping founders think for themselves and then i think as things go on it almost invariably gets to people um and i think that you know all of the tough things around what is our organization design and how do we figure out what our mission vision and values are and when do we need to have those and why do we need to have those and how do those impact you know who am i bring on to my team and how we're organized and how we work and i mean it, it sort of it goes from this like very tactical to like a little bit more of like business direction to people and organization and the highest level of, of strategy and and sort of making all these decisions and i think what i've learned over the years of being on the other side of the conversation is that sometimes you just need a place as a founder as a builder to be able to talk right you so much of your day is directing people or trying to solve problems and enable your team and you don't get an opportunity to take a step back and, and sort of like process all of the things that are going on in your head and so an advisor can really be super helpful as you get to that point to even just be a mirror or you know help you coalesce some of those thoughts and and turn them into something more useful and even solve your own problems so that's what i think is really fun about uh, being involved with companies from early stage kind of as they start to grow and scale the second part of your question which was um you know how did they decide to bring me on and what did it look like um i think they were having a lot of success and they were starting to feel like all right we've got some proof of concept here people are reacting to this the way that we thought we're seeing you know what the complexities are and i think michael who is incredible at um just everything that ever touches finance how you finance the business how you um how we you know get the assets that we use to um to rent out to people um all of the things that are like very data driven and come together to create this like complex model that gets us to where we want to be and and just like building that framework and that point of view and the understanding of like where the priorities are he's just a genius with that um and lucas was an incredible like product person where it was like zero to one is just his jam right like how do you figure out how to you know get yourself off the ground and then you know where you start building blocks but they didn't have anybody on the team that had really gone and scaled and seen at scale like the the operational executional pieces of you know handling actual product and so that was sort of the like superpower i brought to the team that that wasn't there yet and there was there had you know started to be questions about like how are you guys going to actually do this um and so I think that it was just great timing and almost kismet that I, you know, was was open to to doing something new and and that um, you know my particular skill sets came to the table. But I think what is really great is that um, you know we we worked really really well together as a team. Lucas has sort of moved on and he's doing investing and advising and and um, and I think he just put it out on social media, so it's pub public. He'll be going back to school as well and you know so i have sort of grown a little bit more what i'm taking um you know my time on every single day um but i have the operational pieces like the warehousing and delivery teams our supply chain that sort of leads into what is the product that we're actually putting on our site and how do we figure out what the right curated selection looks like and how we source those things how do we support our customers uh what are the tools that we're using um and then all of the acquisition, um, so marketing, brand, visual design, as well as um, business development and sales. And that's sort of where I started. And then when Lucas uh, went on to uh, potentially bigger and better things, um, I also absorbed the teams that um, are engineering and product, product management, um, all of our business intelligence, our sort of product design. Um, so I really sort of work with Michael to translate this like incredibly complex view of all the different things that have to come together, all of the input that he's getting from 
investors and potential partners um, that are out there. And we sort of work together on translating that into, okay, what needs to come together in order for us to like get on that path? Um, how do we measure our progress? And I sort of put that into um, operations, into, you know, like where are we investing in our resources? How is everyone sort of working together? What are we measuring? How do we talk about, you know, the things that are gonna kind of further us down that path? So I, it's evolved a lot, but it's very organic and incredibly collaborative and all sort of, you know, working toward that same sort of roadmap of, you know, what we're trying to build and what we're learning along the way and ensuring that we're incorporating all those things and course correcting and, and taking on new opportunities as they come up. Yeah. And the, the one thing that really, I, I think is super cool about the approach that you guys are taking as a company is like, we're saying it's, it's not quite typical e-commerce. It's almost like a new consumer service offering, right? You have elements of tech, you have elements, you have all these different things that are going on. So you're really creating almost like a new kind of category as opposed uh, of a type of service as opposed to just saying like, oh, we're going to, you know, create a furniture company and this is going to be, you know, our take on brand and our suppliers, etc. So um, I think that obviously poses an interesting challenge, but at the same time, an opportunity. So why don't you walk me through a little bit of like kind of that early stage um, when the company was like figuring out what they were doing, because like right now, the like there's a lot of different components. I see you guys have tons of different um, skews of, like you said, there's all these different things that go into the home, right? But in the early days, what were like what markets were you focused on in launching? Because I'm assuming that there's some level of like and there's some advantageous level of uh, being able to sell to some local markets when you're dealing with a, a really heavy sort of product to, to move around. Um, and what were the products that you initially um, launched with? So what, what was that launch like in the beginning? And then maybe like paint the picture of how things progressed um, to get to where, where they are now with all these different SKUs, these different markets, um, that sort of thing. Yeah, I thanks for asking. I think you really did nail it. Um, I wasn't the one doing it at the very, very beginning. So I will speak with a little bit of an outsider's perspective until I sort of got there. I think I got there at like, you know, maybe that was phase 0 0.5 and I got there at like phase one. Um, but you're right. We absolutely launched um, in a very localized way and started off in Los Angeles, which is where Lucas and Michael were both living um obviously huge market um west coast i think one of the things that i loved about how furnish approached this and i think um you know the other startups i haven't been in silicon valley and i think that you know san francisco and the bay area have been markets that if we had if we were geographically um expanding like that came further down the roadmap and I think that because there was a, a little bit of pragmatism, at least in my past, of just because it works in in San Francisco doesn't mean that it's going to work or be something that people care about elsewhere. And I'm sure that you could say that with any particular market, but um, we launched in LA first, and it was you know the local market was something to kind of fine tune what the operations looked like. Um, and I'll come back and talk about the product that we had um, in a second. And then fairly quickly after that, within six months, we were open in Seattle, still West Coast. But again, let's just make sure this not is not an LA phenomenon before we get too, you know, too far over our skis. And so we were kind of operating these two markets for a while as our two test cases. And it was great because we learned so much about how customers behave differently in the two markets how um, you know certain uh, marketing or branding um, messages were interesting and um, really led people kind of to be interested, but like didn't convert and how those were different across different geographies. So we've been able to just sort of leverage a lot of that, like those first two markets as our learning lab. And, um, you know, of course we've, We've learned new things everywhere that we've gone, but uh, but I think that that was a, a smart thing to sort of 
get to two relatively quickly and and use those two things to uh, two places and two data points to to sort of learn as two separate labs. As far as the product, um, I can speak a little bit to this just because I remember when Michael and Lucas were in this this phase of like, all right, who's going to work with us? Who's going to sell, you know, two guys that are not from the furniture industry, wholesale furniture, and, and for this weird model where, you know, we're trying to reuse this product over and over again. So not only has to be durable and last, but it has to be refurbable, which means hopefully it's modular so that if one thing breaks, we can sort of replace that one part instead of the whole thing. It, It has to be made out of materials that, you know, we can sand down or that we can you know, patch and make it look like new over and over again, um, and that it can be cleaned really, really well without breaking down. And, uh, you know, they went to High Point um, Market in um, North Carolina, which is sort of arguably the biggest furniture market. They bought tickets, they showed up, and they just started going around and talking to different vendors who were there, looking at the product, really settling in on kind of a mid-century modern, like very clean vibe Though we had like, you know, slight deviations over here with California chic. And we had, you know, a little bit of industrial over here, but, but like sticking to the same general aesthetic. Um, And then just started like figuring out like kind of who gets us um, and who wants to be a part of this journey. And, you know, EQ3 and Crate and Barrel were there in the very, very early days and have been incredible partners of ours since then, even though our partnership has really evolved and changed over time. And then a lot of the sort of wholesale brands that most people wouldn't recognize their names, you know, it's been a very, very stable list of partners that we've been working with. The product itself, we've learned a lot about, and that's changed over time in terms of what does what is durability really? And then, you know, what is the knowledge base of refurbishment processes and tools and equipment and um, supplies that we need? Um, You know, we've had some incredible furniture repair and refurbishment folks who have joined our team and helped us build out that knowledge. But throughout that time, we've really been able to sort of figure out like how to build this and it's still evolving. So we just brought somebody in who has been doing furniture merchandising and sourcing and, you know, been in the business for a while. And she, you know, just every time we have somebody new come in and, and look at what we're doing, they're like, this is great. And guess what we're going to do next? And it just brings it to a whole new level. Yeah. And the other thing that's, that's so cool about that is like when you guys were getting started in the beginning, right? Like there's so many assumptions that you kind of have to just go out and test and put into the market. Like, cause there's going to be certain project products that probably have better margins and can be refurbished easier than others. And you don't know how long, like when you're starting out, you don't know how long people are going to hang on to a specific item. Maybe, you know, they rent it for a couple months or maybe it's a year or two years, et cetera. So I'm sure in the beginning, like there was just a lot of figuring out all these different variables and data points on specific um, on specific SKUs, on customer behavior in specific regions, right? Like maybe people move around more frequently in New York than they do in a different market or, or um, you know, all these different things. So I, I think that's also a really interesting piece and a tough, a, obviously a tough puzzle to solve, but it's definitely, um, you know, I'm, sh- I'm sure that like, how, how do you guys approach that? Like, how do you, how do you approach all the different SKUs with the fact that each skew that you're onboarding has a different process of you know refurbishing or do you just are you just kind of able to say hey our goal is to be able to make x amount of margin on a specific product and then from there everything else is icing on the cake and then we can figure out the um you know the other parts like what's what what's the approach and thought process as a growing business it's definitely evolved over time i think in the beginning we had some good specs and um and I think it got us off to a really great start. We didn't spend a lot of money that you know was not able to be reused and reused uh, in terms of the assets that it brought uh, into the system. So you know we did some research and and got out of the gates. But you're right, we had to keep learning. And so if you look at where we were before, it was sort of like these seem to fit our 
our standards. Let's bring some in. Let's see how they do. And let's try to figure out a way to really um, build this institutional knowledge of both refurbishment and just the life cycle of this product. Now we are, we've built a sort of purpose-built technology system. So our warehouse management and inventory management system is something that we've developed in-house because when we went and looked for off-the-shelf um, systems that could help us run our operations, we felt that they were just lacking a whole bunch, first of all, in the ability to absorb the fact that this is very circular. Like we want things to come back after we ship them out, right? That's good for us. And most commerce related systems, they it's one way, like please go out and please don't come back because that's a very tough exception. We want that stuff back. It's really a part of our business model. It's part of kind of our mission as well on the sustainability side. The other thing is that we identified early on the huge opportunity that building a history of a particular instance of every SKU could give us. So we can learn really, really quickly, you know, this part is always wearing out on this. Um, this particular sofa has been, you know, rented seven times by seven different customers and has been sort of in circulation for this amount of time. Should we offer different pricing to the customer to buy it out because it's probably at the end of its life or nearing that? And so, you know, some of those things we've identified as opportunities. And so now we're able to start at least building that knowledge base. It's still new enough that we don't have the full history, but we're able to start building that knowledge base of how do these products fare over time and how do we, we learn from them. And we've built a lot of product process around introducing new products. So before we sort of commit to buying a whole bunch, we'll get one and we'll have the warehouse team put it together and we'll say, how does it look? How does it feel? How was it to put together? You know, uh, how complex is it, you know, for the customer to deal with? And then we have our refurb techs go sort of beat it up and figure out, you know, how tough is this going to be? How different is it from things that we're already doing there? And we don't bring in anything that those two groups don't both uh, sort of sign off on and say like, yeah, we think this would be a great addition. So we've definitely gotten a lot smarter over time. Um, but, uh, you know, we will continue, we can get even better. Um, and so, you know, that knowledge base that we're building on the refurbishment side and all of the data that we'll have about all of the history of our products and, and what's going on, it just allows us to be even more proactive and insightful and, and make better decisions and create even better opportunities or, or offers for our customers. Yeah, I think that what you just mentioned about how most e-commerce brands are in the practice of thinking about like, how do we like, re like reduce all returns, get those to zero, make sure customers are happy. And, you know, for, and I guess you guys are in a totally different business too, because for super low priced items, a lot of brands won't even re accept returns because there's a certain threshold. If you're selling something for, you know, $10, they're just like, okay, sorry, we messed up, keep the product and don't even bother shipping it back to us because the cost of dealing with it is more than the cost of just eating it right um whereas you guys have found a like you know a high value uh product that makes sense to, so you're building that um you know that sustainability into the life cycle of the product and building out custom software to be able to accommodate that so i think that's a that's a really unique approach and i think one of the the lessons that jumps out at me for other um you know entrepreneurs and e-commerce who are thinking about their businesses every business is unique but being able to think about you know what opportunities can you tap into that maybe is a that's slightly different from what the whole the market as a whole is doing right it would have been really easy for you guys to just say hey okay let's build another furniture company and just be like another you know cb2 west elm etc etc but where there's opportunity is being able to do something that's similar but different that no one else is doing, right? Like that's where the opportunity of the build out is. So I think, you know, obviously not everyone listening to the podcast is building out a D2C furniture brand, but if you're building out in the D2C space, 
you know, thinking about, okay, what are like totally innovative ways that I could approach my business model that aren't the same exact things that everyone else is doing, right? And those oftentimes are the, they're the harder problems to solve, but, um, you know, the potential reward and in terms of being able to build a big business, if you guys are able to continue on your trajectory, this could be, you know, the one-stop shop for, um, you know, short-term rental furniture, furniture that you can acquire after trying. There's so many different angles here and all of that sort of opens up and a white space opens up for you because you're able to, um, you know, take that shot that, you know, other people may not be willing to take, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, I've been lucky enough to be at, at companies that do just identify like, hey, there's something out there, but there's this additional opportunity, right? So Amazon was like, wow, okay, the uh, catalog for books is all digital and accessible. And so, you know, what if I were to just tap into that as a catalog and buy from distributors and be able to, you know, ship from one place to everywhere and everybody could have access to the entirety of that catalog, right? And it was sort of like, that was born out of inefficiency and like going to your local bookstore and saying, I, there's stuff that exists that I can't get from this store. Um, and, and that was really like a customer thing. Um, when I was at Zulily, the model was really flipped on its head and it wasn't like to be cute. We would sell the stuff first and then we would bring it in. And uh, that allowed us to do this sort of flash sale um, process that gave moms, especially the ability to support, sort of provide for the, their families something that was new and unique and maybe was higher priced and wouldn't have been accessible to them except for in this kind of different marketplace in this different uh, situation um, in these like more limited quantities. And, you know, I think it was just this opportunity that Daryl and Mark saw that we're like, oh my gosh, we're having, we're starting to have kids and we're just seeing like box after box after box just show up. We're buying a lot of stuff but it's kind of all the same as everybody else. How do we get unique stuff without paying an arm and a leg? And how do we open this up to every mom in America? And, and so I think that that was really similar. And I mean, the origin story for Dolly, the last company was at, I was at was, you know, a really painful move from Chicago out to uh, Naperville and, you know, a mattress that was strapped on top of a car and, and, just lots of pain of like, this isn't a new problem, but how could you address the gaps in the existing options that are out there for customers with a different model that, you know, brings it to a new level, makes something easier, is now enabled by technology we didn't have before, or consumers are ready for it because there's been this mind shift um, in in the marketplace. So yeah, I'm just like preaching to the choir and like saying yes, 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 yes. But exactly what you said there, there is so much value in these, um, in these gaps to go find this, you know, the, like, let's go address this thing that customers really care about because we have a different model or a different opportunity than we had before. Yeah. And even like thinking back to, um, you know, Amazon, I remember when it was like Amazon versus like border or like Barnes and Noble and stuff like that. Right. And just, you know, in, if you were looking all the way back and you were right then and you were on the outside, you probably, you maybe wouldn't really be able to suss out the difference and like what the future would bring for all of those companies. But in terms of like the culture at Amazon and like the direction, it's like very clear. It's like, okay, we build this infrastructure, we can sell a book online. And the whole thing was like, let's go after online and all the opportunities that'll come along with that. Whereas the other is like, oh yeah, let's just do this e-commerce thing because you know we have to, right? As opposed to thinking about it um, in terms of like from, from the business case. And I think, um, you know, for a lot of the different operators of e-commerce brands looking like you don't want to think short term in terms of like your business. Obviously, you might have to like jump in and find a, a product and like that's going to be a great use case. But like really taking the long term approach for the business and like, where is this going to go? OK, we're going to do X first. And then once we achieve that, like where do we branch out and what are the other opportunities, whether they're new product lines or services? And I think like you guys have clearly demonstrated this bridge between service, between 
traditional e-commerce um, and to come up with a new uh, a new offering, right? And I think a lot of the coolest brands in D2C and in commerce are, you know, commerce and being able to sell online is one component of their business, but they're really thinking of building a holistic, um, you know, almost like a new worldview. What is our what does our full product suite enable? What's the world that that enables? And yes, the commerce and being able to buy it online, that's one piece of it. But, um, you know, will you pull all these other things from different from different software categories, from different business inspos and like pull it all together in one holistic experience? And I think you guys have done a really awesome job of that. So um, for anyone who's listening, I think just, you know, applying that model of thinking into what you're building would be something that's super helpful. Um, and um, I know we're coming up on time here, but Kristen, just as we're wrapping up, what is, you know, I know you just mentioned you launching, you know, New York, DC, some major markets. So I'm sure you guys will have a ton on your plate there, but what's next on the roadmap and what are you guys kind of focused on um, for, you know, the, for the rest of 2022? A big, uh, a big thing for us this year really is bringing furnish to more people. So whether it's um, enabling new ways of fulfilling to customers uh, or new options and, and services for the customers that you know for whatever reason we're not quite able to service right now, um, or it's just you know, where we're located and and how we have to today provide that service. Um, that's really the theme. I think that, you know, there's always this sort of like, what's next, you know, when, when do we go into new products or new services? Because if we go back to our mission of eff making it effortless to create your home, furniture, furniture and decor are a big part of it. It's a big hassle. We have to build that trust with customers, but it doesn't end there. There are lots of services that we could get into and other products that are probably you know, in, in the home. And, and that's always the challenge as uh, somebody building a business is like, how do we, how do we take the opportunities without spreading ourselves too thin or, you know, really leveraging the things that we think are the most important that we actually can do uh, really, really well to get to that sort of next thing. And so for us, it really is about getting in front of more people, bringing them, um, you know, services, whether it's, uh, you know, different furniture products, um, or it's, you know, the ability to buy used and, and like really leaning into that circularity or buyback or any, I mean, there's lots of different things that are sort of on the roadmap for us to think about. Um, but, you know, it will really be important for us to, to focus and prioritize and ensure that, you know, because our business really is built on trust and circularity of the products, um, that you know that we we continue to execute on on that promise and and all of the complexity that actually goes into it awesome well kristen really enjoyed having you on today um learning about what you guys are building at furnish and um you know wishing you guys all the best in 2022 so for our listeners who might want to um check you guys out in terms of furnish as well as connect with you what are the best ways to find you are you on linkedin twitter you know where where where, where can where can our listeners find you yeah you can find furnish on instagram uh, at furnish f-e-r-n-i-s-h you can find us on twitter at furnish living uh we're on linkedin as well um, also feel free to reach out to me. Um, I'm one of the like troublesome names. So it's Kristen, K-R-I-S-T-I-N, Toth. Um, but you can find me on LinkedIn and, uh, you know, and social media as well. So would love to connect. And I really appreciate you spending all this time with me today and letting me talk about this awesome team that, that we have and, and all the stuff that we're up to. Awesome. Thanks so much, Kristen. Have a good one. Thanks, you too.